I've waited to share this because I wanted to get us further into 2021. Um, given the given the the global Netflix binge that was 2020, I wanted to get into 2021 before I asked this question. How many of you have seen The Social Dilemma or at least heard of it? Okay, so this documentary is on Netflix, and I have to highly recommend it. If you haven't seen it, you need to go watch it uh, because it, in essence, is telling us how social media is being used and taking our devices. How many of you have a device on you right now? How many of you know that social media is using this to suck your soul right out of your body? Right? Okay. So that the premise of this entire documentary is this, that what was intended as something beautiful was intended in its genesis, a beautiful dream to connect and reconnect people that had lost touch over time and distance to reconnect them virtually to one another has been turned in the hands of people whenever whenever pride, profit, and power enter the business plan, you know things are going to get ugly, right? So we took something beautiful and in the hands of people we turned it ugly. And instead of a place of connection, it became a place of true addiction, in fact, today it is said that the novice will look at their phone, someone who doesn't even have social media, someone who just uses their phone for email, will check their phone an average of 100 times a day. Just text and email. That means every 10 minutes you're looking at your phone. For those of us who have social media, everyone raise your hand if you have at least one social media platform on your phone. We'll check your phone twice as much. Hello? So it's been... Here's the thing. What's so powerful about this documentary, I want to encourage you to do it. Go see it. The, the designers of said social media told us that because of the profits that they were expected to yield, they designed influential algorithms that forced us to become addicts of our phone. So much so that these men who were designing it Men and women in the very room designing it could not stop themselves from going home and looking at it. Today, they won't even allow their kids to get on social media. They designed it, but they won't let their kids get on it because since its inception, since it entered the market, we've seen teenage depression, anxiety, and suicide increase by 150% in the world. So something that was beautiful became ugly. And that's really kind of the point of where we're going to go today in a sermon called No Longer Slaves. To get there, I want to give us a, just a synopsis nutshell of where we started last week as we're in the middle of Galatians 3. And we're going to turn the corner, wrap up uh, Galatians 3 today and move to Galatians 4. We'll have several scriptures. because I want to just kind of break them down uh, by a few verses at a time. But let's remember that last week what we saw in his fight to help a church this was the first letter written to the New Testament. So the letter to Galatians was the first New Testament letter written to a New Testament church that encompassed both Jew and Gentile. And this is the first time that it ever happened. Those had been segregated prior. So this is the first time that you have segregated people groups now worshiping together under one roof. And the Jews... They had a people within their body called the Judaizers that were coming in and telling the Gentiles that they couldn't be Christians unless they first converted to Judaism, observed the Mosaic law, and then they could become Christians. But Paul said, no, that's a false gospel. In fact, he told us last week that there was a promise made to Abraham. If you want to be known as Jewish and want to know about Jewish culture, Abraham's incredibly important. You've probably sung about him, Father Abraham. 
And he said 645 years before God gave us the Mosaic law, the thing that you're being asked to keep, God made a promise to Abraham that would be fulfilled in Jesus. And that promise was that all mankind would be reconciled to God and to one another, that Jesus would be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That the only way for anyone to truly be freed and truly saved is in Jesus alone. And so he tells the Gentiles, you've already been saved. You've already been freed. And you've been freed from a bondage to sin. So what Jesus did when he came in fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant and fulfilling the law and the prophets, he tore down all the barriers of culture and language that went up at Babel in Genesis 11. The things that separated us, the things that segregated us, the things that put us into people groups. He said all that came down. And I let us know last week that we have a lot of work to do for the gospel when the great commission is that we're to make disciples of all nations. Well, I let us know last week that when the nations have come to your community, because over 20 different languages, the first of which outside of English is Arabic, is spoken in our local high school, the nations have come to us. And so until we are a blanket of color and culture under this roof worshiping Jesus because we believe that he's the fulfillment of that covenant and all those barriers were torn down in him, until we are a representation of that, we have a lot of work to do for the gospel right here in our own space that we share with the nations. We don't have to cross a border or a sea to do that right here to make disciples, amen? What it may mean is we might have to learn a different language so that we let the gospel be spoken in their native tongue. Amen? All right, maybe. Okay. So today, Paul's going to take it further under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's going to show us just how much he's fighting for us to understand who we are individually and collectively, who God has given us to be. And we need to stop interpreting and shackling ourselves with like religious rules and rigor. We need to stop abusing grace. We need to recognize that the, there is no argument for law versus grace. The argument is this, that God loved us enough to give us the law, that the law was intended as a gracious act of God. And as we turn in these first couple verses that we're going to look at today in Galatians 3, we'll see it. It says, before the coming of this faith, verse 23, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian. Now, I want to pause. I don't like that word guardian. There are other translations. Yours may say schoolmaster, okay? I don't like that either, okay? There's a third translation that says tutor. I like that one because it actually communicates what it's trying to say. So the law was our tutor until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian or under a tutor. So the first point I want to make today is this. The law existed to instruct us. The law always existed to instruct us. James said it was like a mirror. It was a mirror reflecting who God is and who we are not. Who he is and how we are to worship him and make our existence about him from sleeping to eating in everything we do, worship of him. There was a system that he gave us that we would know how to make our lives centered around him versus centered around ourselves. And how many of you have learned in this world that this world's pretty self-centered, okay? How many of you just admit, like, I'm kind of self-centered? Less hands, but let's, just, let's get on the same page. Let's get on that level. Here it is. He goes, I 
want to give you something so that you understand who I am and who you are not. But here's the problem. Even the religious elite of Judaism, those who were Pharisees, those who had studied the law more than anyone else, they're more educated than anyone else, they, they understood the practice thereof more than anyone else, took something beautiful that God gave us and they turned it into something ugly and they used it for pride, for profit, and for prestige. They used it for power. They loved what the law said about them and the status that it gave them. It was intended as a vehicle for worship. It was intended to show us something. How many of you know a tutor is something that comes alongside or someone comes alongside and helps you understand something you previously didn't? Amen? And so that's what it was intended for. It was here to instruct us our own inadequacies, our shortfalls. And how many of you know that you've got some shortfalls? How many of you go, I'm pretty flawed? How many of you go, my neighbor right next to me is real flawed? Okay? So whether, whether it be the Judaic law that is trying to be, like these Judaizers are trying to impose on the Gentiles that they were never under previously. It was there to instruct the Jew just how much they needed God. It was always there to point to how much they needed a Savior. But for those of us who were never under the law, and that's most of us in this room, we come from a Hellenistic culture. We're Gentile in our past. And so we go, I was not under the law system either. I don't necessarily understand the Judaic law. Here's the thing. You have a law system. Laws exist so that we have order. You can't go out and just kill someone and not expect a consequence. Right? At least if if that's new information for you, you can't go kill someone and not expect a consequence, okay? Like, it's much like you can't drive on the road and you start accelerating well past the posted speed limit and not expect a consequence. There's law and there's order. And the order exists to show just how much you want to rebel against it, disobey. How many of you, when you see that posted speed limit, go, that's not fast enough? And I kind of know, like, I probably have about 10 miles that I can exceed this and not get in trouble. Come on, let's be honest. How many of y'all, ex- okay, let's, yeah, let's get on that honest level here. Let's talk about who we really are. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. That's not just Jew, that's all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We became aware of our rebellious ways through the revelation of the law, whether that law be Judaic or simply moral. We found out that we we can't do it. And it became heavy. The Jews taught it like this. If you're guilty of one law, you're, enti- you're guilty of the entire th- thing. And so they understood, especially in Judaic law, just how, how religion was too heavy. We had taken a beautiful picture of how we're to worship and we turned it into religious rigor to where it became so heavy that people could not get to God. The, the vehicle we were used using to enter into the presence of God was now a deterrent. And so throughout history, this has been a problem for us in religion. It exists in the American church. How many of you have had conversation with someone in your life who goes, I'm okay with God, I just hate religion. I'm okay with God, I just hate the church. I'm okay with spirituality, I just don't like formalized Religion, this means yes, everyone, okay. So throughout the history of the American church, too many times we as leaders have been guilty of focusing on the letters of the law. 
legalistically placing ourselves on that side of law, teaching people more about what it means to be informed about God than it is about guiding them into a transformational life with Him. Hello? And so we have to be able to own our own mistakes in this. We have to be willing to help people come to a place of going, you know what, it's not about the religious rigor, that's too heavy. But there is someone who stepped into our mess, because we all recognize it's a mess. Even those, even those who don't want to walk into a church or accept formal traditional religion, they go, the world's a mess. They all understand and will raise their hand first to go, the world's self-centered. But what they may not know is that Jesus stepped into this mess and tore down all the barriers that were previously set up. What they may not know is that Jesus loved them enough to step into the mess and to bring them out of it. What they may not know, because they haven't seen his life in you or in me. Because they've not seen us live the grace that Jesus had for us by stepping into our mess. They've not seen us engage in their mess to where they see us love unconditionally and beyond judgment. So they don't know, they've not experienced the love of Jesus because we taught them you got to clean it up first before you can... Before you can become a Christian, you got to stop cussing, stop drinking, stop talking or going with girls that do those things. You know what I'm saying? Just like a Jew looks at a Gentile and goes, hey, you can't just accept grace and freedom. Like, that's not available. You have to first, you know, take a 12-step program, learn it first, and then, and then, you know, you got to become like religious, an American Christian before you can become like a Jesus follower. Hello? And Paul is saying, not only to the Galatians, but to us, that is a false gospel. That is a lie. Jesus stepped in and it's by him alone that we are freed and we are saved. And there is no addition, we're not asking people to become something before they accept him. The presence of Jesus in our lives changes the very nature of our relationship with God entirely. It puts us in right standing with him. There's nothing we can do to do that. The law was intended to keep us in line with God's desire for us. But when abused, it became legalistic, caring more about following rules or making others follow rules. Based on man's interpretation of these verses, instead of focusing on who the law was intended to worship, and who is intended to draw us closer to? <laughs> Throughout Galatians, Paul's doing something. He's trying to teach us. He's trying to teach us that the law exposed just how flawed we are. But that we don't have to try to do anything to earn God's affection. He stepped into a mess because he already loved us. Amen? Amen? The law existed, whether Judaic or moral, to express to you and to I and to our friends who are lost just how much we needed a Savior. Like, those laws existed to give order where it was otherwise divided and chaotic. I'm going to read on. In verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 26. I'm going to read to verse 4 or 5, but stay with me here. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. 
For all of you were baptized into Christ, having clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither female or male. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. We talked about this last week. You are completed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying to you is as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. I want to pause right there on the scripture. I'll bring the rest up in a moment. I want to stop right here after two. I want to explain what he's talking about here. Uh, What he's saying is, much like in the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15, you have two sons who are heirs to the promise that the father, the landowner in that parable, owns. And here's the thing that we don't talk enough about in the story. The younger son who looks at the father and says, hey, I know that I don't get my inheritance until you die, but I don't want to wait for that moment. So I'd rather you just die now. I'd rather you be dead and give me my inheritance. And in grace, the father does it. But here's the deal. His inheritance as the younger son was only a third of the inheritance. The older son was going to get two-thirds. He was going to get far more. And in that story, you have the older son who says, you know, he's jealous. When the prodigal returns and the father just embraces him, the inheritance is completely gone, completely wiped out. He comes back in hopes that he can be treated like a servant, like a slave. And the father looks at him, falls on his neck says, there's nothing that you will ever do, no matter of good or evil, that's ever going to change the fact or the status that you're my son. How many of you are grateful that's God's heart for you and I? There's nothing we can do, no evil that's ever going to change our status as a child of God. But then the older, the religious, who represents the religious Pharisee here, the one who knew more, the one who was faithful was there. He gets jealous that the prodigal comes home and is received by the father, even though the inheritance is gone and everything that's left is his. He's mad that there was a party thrown for the prodigal and he's never gotten a party. And the father goes, you're my son. You've always been here. This, everything's yours. It's all left to you. What are you angry about? And so what he's trying to point out here is that There is an appointed time for all of us as an heir of of Jesus. There's an appointed time for us to receive our inheritance. But man, you did nothing to earn it. Hello? You did nothing that made you more in line for an inheritance than anyone else in the room. In fact, Scripture says the opposite of what the world teaches you. The world teaches us, in the end, the first finished first. But in the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, it's the last finish first. Those people who let everyone else go before them, they finish first for eternity in his kingdom. Amen? Those who are selfless, those who live by the first and second greatest commandment, I love you with all that I am, and I'm going to love others the way that you would. That person is the star in Jesus' eyes. That person comes front of the line in the kingdom of God. Unlike what the world teaches us, And so this religious leader, this brother who is older, who's getting all this inheritance in the prodigal story, goes, what about me? I earned it. Can I ask you a question? How many times have you identified in your own life with the older son of that story where you demand what you feel you you deserve? 
you know that is the cause of all your rifts in relationship, is when you fight for yourself because you worship yourself. You come in demanding respect. You come in demanding what you feel you deserve. And God is trying to say through the hand of Paul, look, you are all heirs. And just like a slave doesn't own anything in a master's house, an heir is not getting the inheritance to the appointed time. And until that time, they have to walk faithfully under the name they bear. Hello? So if you say, I am his, I am Jesus, then it should be evidenced by our lives. All of our lost friends should see his love pouring out of our lives because we are heirs of a kingdom that we didn't earn and we got grace that we didn't deserve. So they should get the same kind of act from us as we step into their mess because he stepped into ours. Hello? The kingdom is messy. How many of you that scares you? I think it would scare a bunch of three-piece-wearing, hair-parting, big Bible-toting religious people. But that's not, that's not who I am. And I don't think that's who I'm talking to. So let's step into their mess. Going further in verse 3, it says, So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. He's speaking now to the Gentile. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we, focus on that pronoun, we, might receive adoption to sonship. Next point. We're not so different. They were living in a world now where they're worshiping Jew and Gentile elbow to elbow, and he's saying, you're not so different. Jesus is what makes you one. You both had a law that exposed that you needed a Savior. And so Jews here are referred to as the heirs, and Gentiles here are referred to as the slaves. And Paul is saying, look, you've now, and Jesus, been brought together, and you are just children of God, his church, all of you. There's no longer dogs, no longer heirs. You are all co-heirs in the kingdom of Jesus. Amen? And so these Judaizers are coming in and trying to tell the Gentiles, you have to become a Jew first. Here's Here's what breaks my heart about the Judaizer. Here's what breaks my heart. They were unwilling to let go of the tutoring of the law. Thus, they never advanced into the care of the Savior. How many of you think it's incredibly sad to watch someone live under religious rigor and weight of that religious rigor their entire life and then never receive that inheritance? They did everything that their law, their religion told them to, but they never experienced the grace and the freedom of Jesus. They never got it. So Jesus says that I am the fulfillment. And so whether you come from the Jewish law side of things or just the heinous sin side of things of a Gentile, I can write you and I can make you one, both Jew and Gentile, together. The law was always intended as a temporary means of showing men their sin thus leading to one true Savior. Romans 3 says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Since there is no, listen, there is no distinction. Since there is no distinction for all of sin and fallen short of God's glory, they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I need you to write this down. This is a good point. Our commonality as humans is not our goodness. 
our bondage to sin is. The thing that unites us is not our common goodness. It's our bondage to sin. Our common hope is in Jesus alone because Jesus broke the bondage of sin to make us one in him. Amen? So the law was always intended to be a temporary means to just expose how much we need a Savior. Number one, what that means is this. If we keep our focus on the law, we're going to miss out on the grace of Jesus Christ. If we focus on the law, religious rigor, we're going to miss out on Jesus' grace. But secondly, and probably more important for those of us who have grown up in a culture of religious practice, if we make our focus, law and religion, we will successfully help others miss out on Jesus. Let me say that one again. If we make our focus law and religious rigor, then we, his church, who have been called to make disciples of all nations, given the Great Commission, will successfully help others miss out on Jesus. And I don't want to be a part of that church. It's a tough pill to swallow, but too many times... We, like the Judaizers, are trying to require of people what Jesus himself didn't. We are saved by his power, not by our performance. Hello? So we're no longer Jew, no longer Gentile. We're all identified as children of God. Just like Abraham, we talked about last week, was solely a benefactor of the covenant that God made with him because God walked through the pieces himself in Genesis 15. He was going to keep, make this covenant and keep this covenant himself. Abraham would solely benefact, be a benefactor. We, too, acknowledge that through Jesus and trusting him as our Savior, we, just like Abraham was solely a benefactor, we, too, we too are solely benefactors. I want you to reflect on this. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to tell anybody else. Maybe you want to talk about it with a trusted friend later. But maybe your focus has been a little bit too much on your own self-righteousness. And that's caused you to miss out on the third and probably most important point today. And that is this. Let me read it for you in in, uh, Galatians 4, 6 through 7. It says, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Now, I was reading in uh, Mottmas for His Highest recently, and Oswald Chambers made a quote, and I want to say this quote. It's talking about a heavenly vision. When God gives you a heavenly vision, how many of you, God's given you a vision from heaven at one point in your life? You've seen something. Okay? All right. Here's what it says. He says, The vision that God gives you may not come immediately. Habakkuk says, though it tarries. It says, we cannot bring the vision into fulfillment through our own efforts. But we must live under its inspiration until it eventually fulfills itself. We try to be so practical that we forget the vision. At the very beginning, we saw the vision, but we didn't wait for it. We rushed off to do our practical work, and once the vision was fulfilled, we could no longer even see it. Waiting for a vision that tarries is the truest test of our faithfulness to God. It is at the risk of our own soul's welfare that we got caught up in practical busy work only to miss the fulfillment of God and his vision for us. Third point. Through Jesus, we are heirs that inherit, but also invest. Now, throughout time and tradition, there have been these special coming-of-age ceremonies. Like, in Judaism, there's bar mitzvah for a, a, a young boy between the ages of 12 and 13. 
for a woman that's called bat mitzvah it's between the ages of 12 and 13. What this means is they have now been considered no longer a child, but an adult. Uh, Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, you know, when I was a child, I did childish things. But when I became new, when I became an adult, I put childish things away. In fact, in the Gentile equivalent, it says that Gentile children would come uh, to, to, of age and they would literally sacrifice their toys that they had when they were children to a false god. Thus showing that they had entered manhood or womanhood. This is called toga virilis. It happens in the life of a Gentile boy when he's 18. You see, these were all significant moments in a child's life. They, where they move from child to adult. Where they're now responsible. Where they have an accountability. Not only did the child look forward to these points, but every parent in a community did. In fact, that's why you see at a bar mitzvah multiple people, multiple generations surrounding this, this young boy or this young woman who's now stepping into adulthood. What Paul's trying to point to in 1 Corinthians is this. This adulthood is the new life that we have in Jesus. It's a coming of age of sorts. And in, in this letter, verse 5, Paul used the word adoption, huetheosa, which means a compound word. It means son who has been granted placement or placing over uh, who's received placement or placing from a, an adult that wasn't their blood. So it means it refers to a man's giving of status of sonship to someone who wasn't his natural child. I want to share with you a story if it's okay. You guys okay with a story? Take a little time. Here it is. My friend Rick and uh, his wife Cindy were adopting from Russia several years ago, and they had fallen in love with a two-year-old boy who had Down syndrome, and they were adopting him to bring him back to the States. Upon a week before they were to take off and go get their son, Russia shut its borders, all their money gone, the adoption shut down immediately. They couldn't get their son. Their son was stuck in Russia. They had fallen in love with him, and there was a, a, a barrier between them. They couldn't get to him. So uh, about six months after that period, they were on a mission trip in China. They were going to China to help serve and help plant churches. While they were there, their missionary friend drove them in front in the, in the city, drove them in front of an orphanage. And you got to understand, like I, I think every parent in the room would, when you have fallen in love with a child, but you can't be with your child, like their child's in Russia. His heart is broken. They are raw. Okay, So this missionary drives them in front of this orphanage in China, and Rick can figure out what it is. He looks up, he sees orphanage, he's like, what are you doing? He looks at his friend, he's like, what are you doing to us? Like, dude, we can't be here. Like, don't do this to me. And he goes, man, I need you to come in, you need to see something. I need you to walk in here. He's like, I'm not walking in there. Don't put my wife through this. We are brokenhearted. It's still very real for us. He goes, I need you to see this. They walk in, and it's an orphanage of children with Down syndrome. There was a two-year-old that they immediately saw and immediately fell in love with. They walked out of there so mad at their missionary friend, but so hopeful for this little boy. Now, his story, the little boy's story, is that he was left, and they found him in a dresser. In China, if you don't have a father to name you, then you get named by the city in which you were found. So this kid's name was Bao because he was found in the Bao province. He was literally owned by the government. And because he was mentally retarded, he had Down syndrome, he was considered uh, unvaluable. He was cast off. And so he was in that orphanage, never expected to be adopted. 
they fell in love with him and they flew back to America having already given him a name. His name was Frankie. And their heart, they started to gravitate towards this little boy. They went through everything that you have to go through for an international adoption. And in this case, everything got expedited. It's amazing how, how everything came to be far faster than it did with Russia. On the day that he went to get his child in China, when they went to take Frankie home, there's a couple documents that need to be signed by the Chinese government. The first one says the name of the child. And so they came in and gladly wrote... Frankie Dearman. Okay. You go, that's not a big deal. In China, that's a huge deal. Because the very next document that they had to sign at the top says, this child now has an identity because he's been named by his father. Apart from this signature, he has no identity, no value, no purpose. But because he's been named by his father, he's now free to leave this country and do his father's Frankie now lives in Alabama, being raised by his two parents, friends of mine, Rick and Cindy, and he's thriving. He has identity. He's being raised in a Christian home, learning to be discipled as one of Jesus. And here's the thing. None of us, as natural son, none of us are natural sons of God. That's, that's not who we are. We were created in his image, but we were born into sin, and sin was born into us. We we're self-centered. We're all adopted children of God because of what Jesus did. A human adoptive father, Rick can never give his very own nature to Frankie. He can't pass that on to him. However, as children of God, the Heavenly Father gave us his very nature in sending Jesus and putting his Holy Spirit within us. So when you think about the adoption from heaven, what it took to make you move from child of wrath and death to life and child of God. God, your father, who is not your natural father. Your father, he said, was the father of all lies, the enemy. He said, your adoptive father took his very essence and placed it in you and I. No longer children of wrath. No longer previously Jew or Gentile, black or white. Now children of God to receive an inheritance. No longer slaves. We are loved, we are welcomed, and we are worthy because of his word and because of his work. Amen. So like Frankie now is a part of this family to receive an inheritance from Rick and Cindy, we receive life eternal and we get to experience life abundant right here, right now. We get to thrive like Frankie gets to thrive. The question I have for you this morning is this. Every heir was always entrusted as an heir because the inheritance that they would receive was expected to be invested by the father. Every father would sign off on the inheritance with the thought that the heir would not live as the prodigal and waste the inheritance, but would invest it wisely. Paul's spending a lot of time here trying to convince, in this letter, these Gentiles and Jews that they're inherited, that they are heirs, that God has made them one. And the question I have for us is, God have to spend just as much time convincing us that we are heirs of the kingdom that we didn't earn, but we are expected to invest that very kingdom in the lives of other people. That, that what we were given, he expected us to invest because we've been given a name by the Father in heaven. We've been given an identity. We've been welcomed. We've been worthied. Just like Frankie was given a name by his father, we also have been given a name. 
We've also been given an identity. And when the father looks at us, he mostly just sees his son. The question is, what are we doing with our inheritance? Are we investing the son in the lives of those around us who have yet to know him? And let me ask you this. How many of you know someone in your life right now who doesn't know the son? They're still fighting for self. They don't know that they have a name. They don't know they can be reconciled. They don't know, so they're still living in the mess. They don't know that Jesus stepped into the mess to redeem them because they don't see in you and I us stepping into the mess with them. That's that eternal investment that he's talking about here. Are we about our Father's business? Are we about our Father's bidding? Or do we still need to be convinced? This morning, church, how many of you know that we should need no convincing? How many of you agree, say, we shouldn't have to be convinced about this? A, a couple of us? Okay. All right. Well, I think the Lord will use those two. How many of us know we shouldn't have to be convinced? We needed a Savior. The, the, the law showed us that. We're not so different than everyone else that we've been reunited to him and to one another. And he expects us not only to benefit from the inheritance, but we're to invest it. Our Savior set us free from segregation and stereotypes. Now we're the benefactors of eternal life and life abundant. This is our inheritance. The question is, will we hoard our inheritance or will we share it with others? Will we recognize, accept that we're no longer slaves in need of convincing, but driven because we have friends and family that are dying in the mess and they need a Savior too. We have him, but we continue to not live or love like him with them. So I want to do is I want to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask the band to come back. And I want you to reflect on that person that I just asked you about. The person that came to mind when I said, how many of you know someone who right now is in the mess and they're dying? They're dying out here because they don't know Jesus. They don't know they've been freed. And God has entrusted them to you. We sang a moment ago, make room to do whatever you want to. God, come rest on us. Break down our religions. Shatter the walls of our tradition. God, come do whatever you want to. I want to know this morning, church, is that true of you? Because you can't answer for anyone else in this room. Hopefully the church collectively as a group is answering yes. And so we'll go into our community this week to love like him, stepping into the mess like he stepped in for us. And we'll see lives changed, literally saved, like set free from bondage to the sin. Set free from the bondage of the torture of the enemy. But church, we have to become compassionate. We have to become brokenhearted for them like Jesus was brokenhearted for us. The Father's broken heart that we weren't His meant Jesus stepped in. This morning, I ask, does it mean that you, does it mean that you will step in? We'll be active about the investment that we, we inherit that we didn't earn, that we would share it with other people who didn't earn it either. So Father, today I pray right now in this room, as we sing and as this band sings a prayer over us. Jesus, there's so much that we didn't deserve, but you welcomed us into. 
Father, I thank you that we didn't get what we deserved. Father, may that burden us for our friends who right now don't know that same hope and truth. I pray, God, that you would break our hearts for them, that we would love like you, live like you, and step into the mess just like you stepped in for us. And Father, for those in this room right now who are going, my life is a mess. I'm drowning in this. I'm drowning right here. I want that hope. I need unconditional love. I don't need to be judged. I don't need religious rigor. I need Jesus. If that is you, whether online or in this room, I need you to reach out to me. If you're in this room, you can come to me today. I want to talk to you, and I don't want you to waste another minute of your day, another minute of your life until you can have this conversation with me. But if you're online, email me, prayerthefellowship.cc. Father, God, move on our hearts. Have your way, I pray in Jesus' name.